Good morning. Would you open up to Genesis chapter 45? We're going to try to finish the book of Genesis so that in 2019, when we return, we can begin. What's the next book? Exodus. Exodus. So we're going to go from Joseph to Moses, really. We'll be doing a study on Moses to begin with. And a lot of interesting things, a lot of great typology in the book of Exodus. You will be amazed. You get Moses, he's as much a type of, of Jesus as Joseph is, if not more. And then there's, of course, the Passover and all the feast days and all kinds of exciting things. So I'm looking forward to that. I've got to study it and learn it and get, write it down first, but then we'll get into it. Did everybody get a handout? This is going to be important because we'll get to it near the uh, There's a hand there, Ramona and uh, Ramina, I mean. We have a Ramona and a Ramina. (laughs) All right, so uh, you're opened up to Genesis 45. We'll be whizzing through these chapters this morning. After the unveiling of his identity and the very emotional reunion with his brothers, Joseph then went on to share with them bad news and good news. The bad news was that there were going to be five more years of the severe famine. Those brothers didn't know that, did they? They didn't know about Pharaoh's dream, so he shared that news with them. Five more years of this, guys. The good news was that he had a plan to deliver them, to save them from that famine. Setting all 11 of his brothers free from any imprisonment, Or death sentences, remember they had been caught with the silver cup, Benjamin had, and of course all the money that was in their their, uh, saddlebags that he had put there. But he, he freed them from any kind of punishment. He then commissioned them, look at verse 9 of chapter 45, to return hastily, quickly, go to my father. He had been waiting to use that possessive pronoun, my for a long time because he had been tricking them, you know, he was all whenever he referred to Jacob, he said your father. Now he gets to say my father. He wanted them to go quickly back to his father with a rather shocking message that they were to deliver. And it was dad, God has made your son the living Joseph king. Lord of all Egypt, not king, Lord of all Egypt. Can you imagine hearing that? He thought his son has been dead for almost 23 years now. And they come back saying, your son is alive and he is Lord of all Egypt. And he wants you, he sent a message to you. He wants you to hurry up down because he has to Egypt because he has prepared a place for you to dwell with him you and your whole family, to dwell with him in the best land of Egypt, the land of Goshen. And they were also to tell Joseph's father, their father, that there were going to be five additional years of the famine. This is in verses 10 and 11. And therefore they were to prod him to accept this surprising invitation from the Egyptian vizier, you know, the prime minister of Egypt. They were, he was to, I mean, remember, Jacob's kind of stubborn about things, isn't he? So you got to prod him a little bit. 
get down there and see for yourself that this invitation does indeed come from your son, Joseph. You think the brothers shared why Joseph was still alive instead of dead? I don't think they said anything about that. Well, when news reached Pharaoh that Joseph had met with his brothers, he was genuinely pleased about that. He was pleased to hear it. Now, we do not know if Joseph ever mentioned to Pharaoh their mischief with regard to him. Whether he did or not is purposely not recorded in the scripture. Why? Well, because Joseph pictures who? Jesus. So the sins of his brothers were not only forgiven, but they were forgotten. Like Jesus, you know, um, they, they were put as far as the east is from the west into the depths of the sea. So we never read about Joseph talking about their sins, their sin against him and against the father, Jacob, and against really mostly against God, of course. Um, and that's because he is a picture. All he talks about, he's a picture of Jesus. All he talks about is his relationship with them. Well, Pharaoh proved to be a true friend to Joseph. He was a good guy. He was a good Pharaoh. He was sincerely glad for Joseph's reunion with his family. And he makes every effort to show his appreciation um, for Joseph's loyal service to him by his kindness to Joseph's family. What he does is he goes ahead and gives Joseph wagons to carry back his extended family, you know, all the women and all the children. Joseph has a really big family back in Canaan. And so Joseph, uh, Pharaoh gives him wagons to carry back the children. Of course, Jacob is 130 years old. He's going to need to be on a wagon too. <laughs> um, and he gives him, this is in verse 19, whatever else was needed for their journey. He was very, very generous. He said to Joseph, for the good of all the land of Egypt is yours. Look at verse 20. You can't get any more generous than that, can you? The good of all the land of Egypt is yours. Joseph's resources were derived directly from the throne. And they were essentially laid at the feet of Joseph's family for his sake. For Joseph's sake. Why did Pharaoh give his family everything? Because of Joseph. For his sake. So too are you and I blessed. With God's all sufficient resources. Because of our merit. Our goodness. No. Because of our relationship with Christ. For his sake. We have all the resources of the throne. Don't we? Another way Joseph pictures Jesus. So at Pharaoh's command, and it was a command, he commanded Joseph to supply his brothers with everything that they would need for their trip back to Canaan to get their family and their father and then return. Provided, And it was a command. Look at verse 19. This is Pharaoh speaking. Nice entrance. <laughs> you could have just played the drums. <laughs> <laughs> Pharaoh speaking to his <clears throat> uh, to Joseph says in verse 19 now thou art commanded this do ye take your wagons out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives and bring your father and come so it was a command 
Provide your family with everything and get them here. Uh, And so Joseph did that. Okay, he also gave each one of his brothers a change of clothes. Remember how many times we've talked about Joseph and clothes in this account? Well, here we have another one. I forgot about this one. Um, At one point in time, in hateful jealousy, they had taken, they had stripped him of his beautiful robe, didn't they? His coat of many colors. But now he gives them, in loving forgiveness, ten beautiful robes in exchange. How about that? For character and grace and forgiveness and love. Isn't that wonderful? Um, And then what does he present to Benjamin? Just like five scoops of extra potatoes, mashed potatoes, right? (laughs) He gives him not just one change of clothes, but five new suit coats with matching ties and everything. (laughs) Five changes of raiment. And he also, this is in verse 22, he gives Benjamin 300 pieces of silver. Now, remember, the older brothers had sold him for how many pieces of silver? 20. So he gives Benjamin 15 times more than what they had gotten in selling him. There's probably a lesson in all that, too, if you want to think about it and figure it out. And then as a gift to his father, I thought this was rather appropriate. You know, he's got a rather stubborn father. You agree? So he gives him 20 donkeys. (laughs) 20 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and with corn and bread and meat. So he just loads them up with all kinds of wealth, doesn't he? And then as he's sending them off from Egypt back to their father, he also, Joseph, gives them a piece of advice. Look at verse 24. He says, see that ye fall not out by the way. Hmm. It was going to be a long journey back to Canaan, and Joseph knew these men. He knew that they still dealt with their old sin natures. They might begin to quarrel on the way back, or they might get to thinking about things and say, hmm, Joseph is really, really, really rich, isn't he? Why didn't he give us more? One suit coat, one new change of clothes, that's it? Or they might think, why did Benjamin get five new suit coats and 300 pieces? You know, what they could think about and start quarreling or get envious. Uh, Even though every one of them was the recipient of Joseph's forgiveness and his grace and his generosity, they uh, had to be reminded You know, because we tend to do that. There was a parable Jesus gave about this, wasn't there? Remember the person who worked all day and got the same amount as the person who came to work at the end of the day? (laughs) And they complained because we tend to look at each other and say, why does he get so much? Why does she get so much? Blah, blah, blah. Um, And so we need to be also reminded not to quarrel. They, they, They had to guard their testimonies is what he was telling them. Guard your tempers, guard your testimonies. We are told by Jesus the same thing. We are to be vigilant about not falling out by the way. Now, I don't mean losing our salvation. I mean losing our testimony. 
losing our temper. We are to guard our hearts as we walk this faith journey from Egypt, this world, to the Father's house in the promised land. Exiting Egypt with greatly increased wealth, which is exactly what their descendants would do some 400 years later, right? When they would finally, in the Exodus, under Moses, leave Egypt, they had greatly increased wealth because the Egyptians said, here, take this and get out of here. They gave them all their gold and everything. Um, So anyway, they they make their, their way back to Canaan. And they bore news that when they delivered it, caused their father's heart to faint. Verse 26, they said this. Can you imagine Jacob hearing this? Last time they returned to him, it was not such good news. Now they come back and they say, Joseph is alive and he rules over all Egypt. What is Jacob's response to that wonderful, good, shocking news? He does does not believe them. His heart faints and he he does not believe them. I think it's very ironic that when he was deceived to think that Joseph was dead years earlier, he did believe. He was deceived and he did believe, right? He looked at that coat with goat splattered blood on it and he believed Joseph was dead. And yet now when he hears that Joseph is alive, he doesn't believe. Did this happen with the Lord? When the women came back and said, the angel said he's alive and we actually saw him, did they believe? No, they didn't believe either. The only time that, the reason that Joseph, I mean, Jacob's spirit revived in faith, and it did, he came to believe that they're speaking the truth, was when his sons gave them Joseph's message and then, proved that truth of that message by showing Jacob the riches of Joseph's blessings. Showing him all the wagons and the food and the clothing and the silver and everything, the return money and all of that. I don't think they came back with the silver cup, though. I think they gave that back to him, don't you? Well, how is it that you and I attempt to, to convince people that Jesus is alive? We give them his message. Like they gave Joseph's message, we share with them the words of the gospel about Jesus, and then we show them the blessings, the riches of his abundance and how he has changed our lives. We show them our new raiment, that we are different creatures, new creatures in Christ. We've gotten rid of the filthy rags, and we're now covered with his robe of righteousness, aren't we? Well, putting faith in the truth of Joseph's resurrection from the dead, so to speak, for Jacob, it was like a resurrection from the dead. Israel, this is in verse 28, look at Jacob's name. It's now Israel. You know, his, his carnal name is Jacob. Jacob means deceiver. Israel is his spiritual name. What does it mean? Prince of God. So notice the change in the name. It says uh, in verse 28 that he, he says, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive and I will go and see him before I die. And so he hastily packs up all his belongings with his family and he begins the journey down to Egypt. But 
when his caravan only got about 20 miles away from Hebron, that's where he was living, and he got to the place called Beersheba, which is right on the, the border of Canaan, one more day and he'd be out of Canaan. So he's right on the border. He stops. He's thinking. You know, he knew about his grandfather's trip during another famine. This would be Abraham. There was a famine. And what did Abraham do? He went down to Egypt. He didn't really ask God about it. He just went down to Egypt. And do you think that was in God's will? Remember, he lied about Sarah. They picked up Hagar. Uh, He actually became a curse to the Pharaoh at that time because there was a plague on Pharaoh's house because of having taken Sarah. Anyways, it was a mess. And we're still suffering from that mess, do you know? Because from Hagar came Ishmael, and there's been trouble ever since. And then he was out of sorts with Lot. So that was not a trip in the will of the Lord. And then, years later, his own father, Isaac, was on his way down to Egypt in another famine. And what did the Lord have to do? The Lord stopped. Uh, uh, uh. I do not want you leaving the promised land. Isaac never left the promised land. We talked about that when we studied his life. And he was prevented from going to Egypt. So Jacob is wisely thinking, I want to see my son, but maybe this isn't really God's will. So he stopped at Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices, and he sought God's guidance. This is why he's called Israel here. Interestingly, some 40 years earlier, when Jacob, for the very first time, was about to leave the promised land, remember he was running from his brother Esau, who wanted to murder him? The first time he left the promised land, and he was gone for 20 years, he was on his way to Syria and Haran and Uncle Laban. The night before he left the land, the Lord appeared to him in a dream. It's the famous ladder dream with the angels ascending and descending on the ladder and the Lord at the top of the ladder. Well, now he's about to leave the land for the second time and the last time. He will never return again alive. And the Lord again speaks to him in a dream vision. And you can read about it in verses 2 to 4 of chapter 46. And in that dream vision, he does reassure Jacob that it is his will for him to go down to Egypt. So, you know, we think about the Israelites in Egypt for 400 years, many of which they're slaves. It was God's will. That was God's will. He gave Jacob permission to go there with his family. So with the Lord's approval and the Lord's blessing, he does continue on his journey. And when he arrives in um, Egypt, he sends Judah on ahead. And for this, you can skip to verse 28. And you say, why are you skipping all the way to verse 28? Well, it's because in the meantime, we have a genealogy, or not a genealogy, but a list of all who went with Jacob and his family down into Egypt. It doesn't include all the daughters and the women's names. Some of the women, it includes some of the women's names, but um, it's mostly the, the sons and their sons. And so that's what we have in the meantime. There is one thing to point out, which is interesting. If you look at verse 13, you see some of the sons of Issachar, and there's one whose name is Job. See that? J-O-B. A lot of commentators think that this is Job. 
the one and only Job I know about in the Bible. Some disagree, some agree, so you can study that on your own time and see if that is Job, but it's interesting that there's the name Job. All right, so anyway, um, where am I? Okay, so in verse 28, Jacob, they get to Egypt, and he sends Judah ahead to get directions to Goshen. They get in Egypt, and they think, well, we don't know exactly what road should we take. Should we turn right at the gas station, or, you know, how do we get there? So he sends Judah ahead to get directions to the um, land of Goshen, which is, by the way, up near the Mediterranean. It's at the delta of the Nile, and it's... You know, the rest of Egypt was suffering from a famine, but up there they were near water and, um, and it was lush land and it was flat land and it was good land for uh, flocks of sheep and goats. So, and it was the best land. Even Pharaoh says it's the best land and that's where Jacob's family is going to live. Uh, so Joseph, uh, Judah gets, to, well, he gets to Joseph and he tells Joseph that his father has arrived and his extended family, they have arrived in Egypt, and Joseph is so excited. He hasn't seen his daddy in 23 years. And so he jumps in his royal chariot, he starts up the engine, and he races out to meet his father. And we, are, we just can imagine what kind of a um, reception that was. It must have been extremely emotional, more emotional than his reunion with his brothers and even with Benjamin. When he sees his father, we're told he falls on him and weeps a good while, it says. I don't know how long that would have been, but, you you know, I was thinking about there's going to be a wonderful reunion one day when a lot of us are going to see our daddies again and our mommies again and other one, other loved ones and friends and people, husband, you know, that have gone on before us. What a reunion. You think we'll weep for a good while? <laughs> Tears of joy. Yes, absolutely. And so then Jacob says, old Jacob says to his beloved son, this is in verse 30, now let me die. Since I have seen thy face, because thou art yet alive. You know, it says, I can die now in peace and joy and happiness. I have seen you again. Hmm, does that sound familiar? Was there somebody else who said that, can, that you can think of? Anyone? Years later, someone else. I know you got it in your mind. Who knows the answer? Yes. Who said it first? Very good. Very good. You get. Why are the answers always in the back row? <laughs> Simeon. Remember old, the old prophet Simeon? Uh, he was in the, t- the Holy Spirit had told him that he would not die until he had seen the face of his salvation, his, the Savior, the Messiah. And one day he was in the temple like he always was with the prophetess Anna. And in comes Mary with an eight-day-old baby boy. He takes one look at that little baby boy and he says, Oh, Lord, now I can die. I have seen the face of my Savior. You see, this is another way Joseph pictures Jesus. I don't know if anybody else that it was ever said about, When I see your face, I can die. I can go ahead in peace. I mean, they both knew where they were going. No big problem. Well, Joseph went to great lengths, and he took the utmost care in settling his family very comfortably in Goshen. Pharaoh had consented 
to his request that that would be where his family would dwell. But he made sure that the king's promise became a reality. You see, Joseph was a mediator between the king and his family. He was an advocate for his family with the king, just like Jesus is our mediator, the mediator, the one and only mediator between God and man. And he is also our advocate, right, concerning God. Well, Joseph knew that Pharaoh would want to meet his family, and so this is homework question number four, ladies. I'm not going to give you the answer. (laughs) But Joseph chose five, only five, of his 11 brothers to present to the king. That's in 47 verse 2. My question to you, and I thought you could have fun with this, is which five brothers do you think he chose? Out of the 11. The five he picks, he gives them instructions on how to behave in front of the king. You think he told them to shave before they went? (laughs) Clean up a little bit. Put on those new suit coats I gave you. um, And shave and clean up. And here's how you act. You know, here's how you behave. Don't be your regular selves. Uh, He gave them advice. And especially he gave them advice about what to say regarding their occupation. When Pharaoh asks you what you do for a living, that's what men usually ask men, isn't it? You know, women, when they meet a new woman, they say, well, you know, do you have any children? Do you have any grandchildren? (laughs) But when a man meets a man, what do you do for a living? Have you ever noticed that? Anyhow, um, so the Pharaoh would say, well, what do you do for a living? And they were to emphasize, they were to stress the fact that their sole occupation was shepherding. And that it had been for generations. Their father was a shepherd. Their grandfather was a shepherd. They were to stress that. This would ensure, you see, that they did receive the land of Goshen because it alone would provide them with the pasture lands that they would need for their flocks. It also, more importantly, would keep them separate from the Egyptians. Why? Because the Egyptians despised shepherds. Kind of crazy, but they thought sheep and goats and animals like that were unclean, that they were nasty, and so anybody who handled them was also nasty. And they just despise them. That's in verse 34 of chapter 46. We've talked about it before. Joseph knew the importance of keeping his family isolated and insulated. Isolated and insulated from the culture and especially the religion, the pagan religion of Egypt. When Joseph presented his father, now he had brought five brothers and now he was going to present his father to the pharaoh. The king was very gracious to him. He was gracious to Jacob for Joseph's sake, right? And uh, he also respected, he was respectful of his age. I mean, here comes this old guy. He's 130 years old. I don't know how old Pharaoh was, but he wasn't that old. Now, because of, remember Genesis 12, 3. Whenever I say Genesis 12, 3, your minds automatically ought to remember that great promise because it's still in effect today. I will bless those who bless thee. He was speaking to Abraham. I will bless those who bless thee, Abraham, and your descendants. In other words, the Jews, the nation of Israel. And I will curse those who curse thee. Well, because of that promise, Pharaoh had been blessed by God for having exalted and respected and shown kindness to a descendant of Abraham, Joseph. 
And also, he even extended his generosity and his kindness and his hospitality and his material blessings to Joseph's family. So, the promise kicked in. He was a blessed man. And I would venture to say that he was the best pharaoh Egypt ever had. Wasn't King Tut. <laughs> or, and I'm saying this from God's perspective. That he was the best pharaoh Egypt ever had. In fact, you know what? God even guides Jacob to bestow blessings on Pharaoh. As he is presented to Pharaoh, the first thing he does is bless him. When he leaves his presence, he blesses him again. Now, that's very interesting. Jacob's double blessing on Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is interesting. Because the truth of scripture is not only stated, for example, in Hebrews 7, 7, but it's also exemplified. And that truth is that the greater blesses the lesser. That's why Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Remember? Abraham didn't bless Melchizedek. It was the other way around because the greater blesses the lesser. The Egyptians, you know, thought of their pharaohs as gods. Especially, um, or specifically, they, they thought they were the reincarnation of Ra, R-A, the sun god. And yet, here comes before Ra, you know, the embodiment of the sun god. Here comes this aged, weathered uh, Hebrew shepherd with this clumsy limp as he walks. Remember that? His hip was thrown out of joint when he wrestled all night with the Lord. He comes in and he's, you know, he's got unsophisticated manners compared to the Egyptians. And he's there before this mighty king. And all of a sudden he raises himself up as high as he can get. And he lifts his hands up to heaven, his gnarled sunburned hands up to heaven. And he pronounces a blessing on Egypt's mighty king. Probably the most powerful man in the world at that time. That's amazing. It's as much as saying, you, O Pharaoh, might be a prince among men, one even perceived as a god who has power on this earth. But I am the prince of the almighty true God. That's what his name means. Israel, prince of... And he has power both on earth and in heaven. So as the ambassador of the greater... I bless you, the lesser. And amazingly, Pharaoh let him do that twice. Isn't that incredible? It's too bad that Jacob didn't keep being so noble. <laughs> because then he has his interview with Pharaoh. He, and in it, he gives an appraisal of his life that wasn't really such a great testimony for almighty God. I mean, he's the ambassador for almighty God, right? And so you think when he's talking to Pharaoh that uh, he would speak well, give a good testimony. Now he begins well because he calls his life a pilgrimage, which means, and what verse am I in, Terry? Nine, okay, nine. He says unto Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. That's how I know how, how old he is, the Bible told me. Um, so he knows his, he's just passing through this life like we all are. 
This isn't his eternal home. He knows his eternal home is elsewhere in heaven. So he starts out good. But then he describes the years of his life, the days of the years of his life. How does he describe them? Few and evil. Well, you know what? If I had lived to be, I won't. But if I lived to be 130, I don't think I would say my years have been few. (laughs) I'd say too too many. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Joseph only lives to be 110. Jacob lives to be 147. He's not. He's got 17 more years to go. But he says, my years have been few and evil. Don't you think it would have been a better testimony to say to the, ki- to the king, my years have been many and good, blessed. I mean, you know how many times he's seen and talked to God, the Lord, the pre at least two. He's seen him, wrestled with him, talked to him. He's had... His name was changed to Israel. He's the father of Israel. He's got a lot of sons. He's got a lot of daughters. He has four wives. One one deceased. That might not be in the good column. I'm not sure. But, I mean, he's been blessed. Yes, he's had a lot of problems and struggles, but a lot of them were his own fault. But that is a terrible test. It's a good thing that Pharaoh had Joseph in his life for a good testimony instead of just Jacob. All right, so uh, much of the rest of chapter 47 is a uh, brief account of how Joseph, his policy during the final five years of the very sore famine. I'm not going to take the time to talk about it, but when people ran out of money, then they could buy grain, life-sustaining bread with animals. If they, when they ran out of animals, then they could trade land. I mean, they could give land and anyway, it in verse 25, you can see what the people say to Joseph. They say, thou hast saved our lives. In other words, his name, Zaphnath Paneah, is true. He is the savior of the world. Well, he, you know, Jacob talked about dying. If you go through, you see him, he's, it's just like his dad. Remember Isaac? He was always dying, dying, dying. And he never did. He just kept living and living. <laughs> Esau even thought he was going, you know, when my dad dies, I'm really going to get uh, Jacob. But um, Jacob is the same way. He just he just talks about dying all the time. Um, my husband's like that. Ever since we've been married, 43 years, I've heard about now, Catherine, when I die, don't forget to change the air filters. And don't forget. <laughs> I mean, over and over and over all the time. And because uh, he, he's six years older than me. You know, but I always think probably the Lord has a sense of humor. He's going to take me first. And then Frank will have to remember to change the air filter. (laughs) No, he won't forget to change the air filter. Uh, Anyway, so he talked about dying. But when he actually approached the time of his departure, 17 years, you know, he's been 17 years now in Egypt. He purposed to make his dying words a testimony of faith for his children and his grandchildren. Yay, Jacob. At least we could say he ended well, okay? He urged Joseph to make an oath, okay? He brings Joseph before him, and he says, uh, I want you to promise that you will not bury me in Egypt. He didn't want to be caught dead in Egypt, Thank you. <laughs> but he is to promise, this is in 47, 29 to 31, that he is to be buried with his forefathers in Canaan. He wanted to be buried in the cave of Machpelah where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and it says also Leah has gone on. 
to be with the Lord. And she is also buried there. So Jacob's going to be the sixth one buried in that cave. And he makes Joseph promise, you'll bury me there. It was a testimony to, to his people, to his family, that he knew Egypt was not going to be their permanent home. Because God had told him over and over again, I will return you. I, you know, he promised the land. That's part of the Abrahamic covenant. It, this Egypt was merely going to be a place to sojourn until God would bring them back to the promised land. Well, shortly after taking the burial oath, Joseph was summoned to his father's dying bedside, where Jacob proceeded to pronounce a unique blessing on him. Joseph went to his dying father with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. They, you know, he says, come on, boys, I want you to see your grandfather one last time and bid him farewell. Well, as is typical with many older people, he got, when he saw his grandsons, what did he do? He gathered up his strength and he sat up in bed. This is in verse 2 of chapter 8, 48. And um, he made reference to the two times God, God Almighty had appeared to him in Luz, L-U-Z, which is another name for Bethel to declare to him the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. What he's doing here, and I hope you remember this, the Abrahamic covenant was specifically given from Abraham to just one of his sons, Isaac, not to Ishmael. And then it was given to one of Isaac's sons, Jacob, not to Esau. But with Jacob, something unique happened. The Abrahamic covenant went from Jacob to all of his sons and all of his descendants. Okay? He's the beginning of Israel. So the covenant is for all of the Jews, all tribes. So it's different. Jacob wants to make sure that Joseph's sons understand that even though they were born in the land of Egypt, they were part of the multitude of people and the great nation that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and to himself. Now, due to Reuben's sin of having uh, laid with his father's concubine, he had been stripped of his firstborn birthright, you know, the double portion of the birthright. And that was going to be given instead to Joseph, because he is also a firstborn, isn't he? He's the firstborn of Jacob's other wife, Rachel. The concubines didn't count because they weren't true wives. So he is also a firstborn. And he's going to receive the double portion of the birthright that should have gone to Reuben. Joseph is going to receive that birthright in a, in a unique way, however, because it would go to him through his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, who Jacob explains in verses 5 to 7, that he was adopting. I am going to adopt your two sons, Joseph, as if they were my own through Rachel. And then he talks about how Rachel had died right outside of Bethlehem, Ephrata, And therefore, you know, she gave Benjamin as she was dying, but she could not proceed to give him any more sons. So he was adopting Manasseh and Ephraim. You see, there is no tribe of Joseph, is there? 
but there is a tribe of Ephraim and there is a tribe of Manasseh. Do you think Joseph was upset about that? No, those were his sons. He was proud. He was glad. All right, so with his grandsons at his father's bedside, Jacob glorifies God as he speaks of the privilege he had in not only again seeing Joseph, who he never thought he would see his face again, but he has a wonderful privilege in that he can see Joseph's seed, his children. Joseph knows that his father is about to pronounce a blessing on his two sons. So he bows himself before Jacob, and then he makes arrangement for his eldest son to be on Jacob's right-hand side and his youngest son to be on Jacob's left side. Get it? Because in Scripture, the right hand speaks of God's strength and his favor and his help which should go, you know, basically society, culture would have said to the firstborn. Um, But Jacob, again called Israel, if you notice, surprises Joseph by doing what? This or this? (laughs) He was always a stinker, deceiving things, wasn't he? When he stole Esau's birth, so he he cro- he makes the form of a cross when he does that. But he puts his right hand on Ephraim, the younger son, and his left hand on Manasseh, the older son. You see, after living near Joseph for nearly seventeen years, Jacob has a much better testimony to present to his grandsons than what he had presented to Pharaoh. He speaks to his grandsons highly of God. He calls God the God of his fathers. He calls him the God who fed and kept him all the days of his life. This is in verses 15 and 16, which is literally the God who shepherded me all of my life. Do you know this is the first time in the scripture that God is referred to as a shepherd? The Lord is our good shepherd, isn't he? Our great shepherd, our chief shepherd. Isn't it appropriate that the first one who referred to the Lord as a shepherd was a shepherd himself? Jacob was probably the best shepherd, even better than David. Remember, he was a shepherd for 20 years for, with Laban. He was a shepherd even before that, but he was an expert. Remember how he did all these things to increase his flocks? I think, yeah, the sticks and all that kind of stuff. I think um, that that's very appropriate, that it came from one who was a shepherd. Jacob's life had definitely, we would all agree, it had been full of a lot of suffering. As I said, many of the sufferings were the consequence of his own mistakes, his own carnal nature, his own weaknesses. But in the last season of his life, He came to see things differently. Joseph had an influence on him. And maybe Judah too. Jacob finally understood that even in his sufferings, God, his good shepherd, had been with him. He had been at work guiding and maturing him through every single trial and adversity. He had come to see things the way Joseph did all along. When Joseph... Then when Jacob got to that point, the point in his blessing, where he's about to pronounce the blessings, whatever he said, we don't know. But Joseph noted that his father's hands were on the wrong sons. And so he tries to, he assumes that's a mistake. I mean, after all, his dad is 
uh, what did I say, 147. He's 147 years old. So maybe he's a little bit, got a little dementia, I don't know. But he attempts to correct it. But promptly, very promptly, he is informed by his father that what he had done was intentional. This is in 48, 17 to 19. Nope. My, I'm going to leave him there. I know what I'm doing. Basically, I'm being led of the Lord. You see, it was God. It was God who directed Jacob's hands. God chose Ephraim, the second-born son, for, the first, for Jacob's firstborn. You know, to get the... Now, this is not to be in the Messianic lineage, but this is to get the double portion of the firstborn blessing. You following me? So it was to go to Ephraim, not to Manasseh. And if you look through Israel's history, Ephraim did indeed, it was almost double the size of Manasseh when they went into the promised land. Actually, over and over again in the Old Testament, the whole northern kingdom, which became known as Israel, was also many times called Ephraim. So the double blessing did indeed go to Ephraim, not Manasseh. Uh, but God did, the, it's his divine prerogative to do this, isn't it? Isn't he a sovereign? <laughs> now the idea of firstborn in the scripture is often used to refer to a position of preeminence, not necessarily to the position of being the first one out of the womb. You have to understand that. A lot of times that term firstborn is a reference to the one with the preeminence. For example, David had the position of firstborn even though he was the youngest of all Jesse's sons. Did you know that Jesus is referred to as God's firstborn in the book of Colossians? A lot of people say, well, that means he was created if he was God's firstborn. No, it means he has the preeminence. Jesus was not created. He's, it's not the firstborn of God's creation, creatures. He is the creator. So you have to understand that. When Jacob intentionally crossed his arms to bless Joseph's sons, he was creating a picture of how the last can be first. He was creating a picture of the cross, and he was also emphasizing the importance of the second birth. So a lot of things were covered in that. Then in his last significant act as a patriarch, 147-year-old Jacob called all of his sons to his bedside, where he then proceeded to prophesy to them individually. Now you can get your little piece of paper out that you got as a handout, which it says history of Israel in Genesis 49. He prophesied to all of his sons that which shall befall them in the last days. What verse is that? <coughs> uh, verse 1. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. All right. And, of course, he, he begins with, um, with Reuben. What he does is he gives a brief character assessment, a trait assessment of each son. Sometimes he refers them to an animal, like a lion or a wolf or a serpent. He um, also gives a, a prediction concerning each son. 
The longest ones are to Judah and to Joseph. Now, each man's character traits provide prophetic clues about their destinies as tribes. So when he says, you know, something about the individual man, it also is going to be proved to be true of their descendants in general and the the tribe that would come from them. Some have described this scene as the judgment seat of Jacob, you know, compared to like pre-shadows the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. In that, you know, every, every, every son, like one day, every believer will be brought up for review at the judgment seat, you know, when um, our lives will be assessed. That's a good comparison. This is like the judgment seat of Israel. This prophecy now, literally, and you know me to know that what I'm going to say is true. I could spend weeks and weeks on this one prophecy in this chapter. There is so much here. We could go through all of Israel's history and and show you how the few words Jacob says to each son came to be true in their history as a tribe. But the focus of this study is on finding Christ in the Old Testament scripture. So I'm only going to highlight some of the aspects of this long prophecy that picture him. Okay. But one thing I do want to mention is that Jacob's words to his 12 sons do present a quick, it's like a jet tour, (laughs) prophetic overview of Israel's history from him, from Jacob. He's like the conception of Israel, right? His name was changed to Israel. So this this is the conception of Israel all the way to the last days of Christ's two comings, his two advents. So let's look at this quickly, and you'll be confused, but you can read your email lesson and spend a little more time on it. In verses 3 to 7, Jacob prophesies and comments regarding his first three oldest sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And in what he says to them, we have a concise picture of Israel's history from I you know, said already from Jacob and the 12 tribes to the time of Messiah's first coming, which we're getting ready to celebrate, you know, Christmas, the, the birth of Jesus. Um, so if you look at it, Reuben, in verse 3, Jacob says, thou art my firstborn. Do you know that Israel is called God's firstborn? Because she was, she had the preeminence over all the nations. You get it? The preeminence of all the nations. Not that she was the firstborn nation, but she had the preeminence. And when she was born, he goes on and says, she was the beginning, I'm talking here about Israel, the beginning of my strength. You know, God says, this is my, I'm putting all my strength in Israel. The excellency of my dignity and the excellency of my power. This is all represented by Reuben, Israel's beginning. But then what happens? Look at verse 4. She becomes, as Israel, you know, as time goes on, she becomes unstable as water, doesn't she? If you know anything about Israel's history, she becomes unstable. Um, And uh, adulteress. He talks then about how Reuben defiled his bed. He was an adulterer with his father's concubine. 
Did Israel become adulterous with God and turn to other gods? Yes, she did. Um, (laughs) And then he goes on to talk about Simeon and Levi. You see, instead of being uh, benevolent to the other nations and being a good witness to the other nations like Israel was supposed to be, she became instruments of cruelty. Uh, and uh, she had anger. Look at just some of the things he says about those two guys. They were the ones who slaughtered all the Shechemites. Cursed be their anger, verse 7. They were fierce in their wrath. They were cruel. And over time, what happened? He divided them and scattered them. Did Israel become divided? Was there a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom? Yes. Well, so that takes us all the way to the time of Christ's birth. And then look at verses 8 to 12. Who does he speak to next? His fourth son, Judah. What does Judah's name mean? Praise. Judah represents, he gives us a quick sketch of the, um, of the Messiah's appearing and his uh, rejection. He talks about... Um, him as a lion of course we know jesus is a lion of the tribe of judah he is of course the cause for praise which is what judah's name means it talks about the scepter which is the kingship will not depart from judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until shiloh comes jews and christians all know shiloh is a number another name for the messiah it means the peace bringer or the one to whom the scepter rightly belongs this is all about jesus unto him will the gathering of the the people be it even talks about a foal and an ass's colt (laughs) which is interesting um because you know remember the triumphal entry into jerusalem and it says his eyes is like wine and teeth white. anyway all of that is talking about the birth of jesus the coming of jesus okay well then in verses 13 to 15 <clears throat> after he pronounces blessings on judah jacob does something interesting he skips he mysteriously skips from his fourth son, Judah, to his tenth son, Zebulun. Now that puzzling jump pictures Israel's history after she rejected her Messiah. You see, she rejected, he came and she rejected him, right? So then Lord, the Lord had another instrument as his witness, the church. He turned to the church. But what was happening with Israel during that time? And it's still going on. We're still in this stage right here. She was scattered to the sea. If you look at Zebulun, it talks about the sea. You know what the sea represents in the Bible? The Gentile nations. Was Israel scattered to the sea to the Gentile nations? Yes, she was. Um, It talks about being couched down between two burdens she was under the oppression of gentiles you know this is during the church age this is what's happening today with israel this aspect of her history will continue until the lord's most serious judgment on israel on his people in the tribulation which are basically her seven years of severe famine spiritual famine 
And the, this will be during with the rise of Dan. Okay, next one he talks to, verse 16, is Dan. Dan shall judge his people. This is when God will really judge his people during the tribulation. Dan is referred to as a serpent by the way. And what else? An adder in the path. Those are both what kind of creature? Snakes. Snakes. This, this prophecy foreshadows the appearance of the Antichrist and his short-lived but brutal kingdom. Notice there's a mention of a horse. And a rider, and if you know anything about the book of Revelation, that takes your mind to the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. When Jacob spoke of the rider of Dan's prophecy, he talks about him falling backward. The rider shall fall backward. You see that? And when he says that, he suddenly, unexpectedly, this is Jacob, breaks into a word of praise in verse 18. What does he say in verse 18? I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. Oh, that's interesting to just stick in there. And then he's on his deathbed. He goes on to then give comments to Gad, Asher, and Naphtali in verses 19 to 21. All of whom, those three guys... Their characteristics give us, they depict the characteristics of the yet future tribulation saints, the Jews who will come to believe in Jesus during the tribulation under the Antichrist. They will be waiting for the salvation of the Lord during the tribulation, during the reign of the Antichrist, right? They're waiting, waiting for the Lord to appear. They are the troop of overcomers. That's what Gad's name means. Remember when we studied all the meaning of their names that their mothers gave them? Jacob even repeats that. He says, a troop shall overcome him. Overcome who? Dan, (laughs) the Antichrist. He shall overcome at the last. Even if they're martyred, they're overcomers, aren't they? Um. And they will have true cause for happiness because they know the Lord is coming and one way or another they're going to be delivered. Now, that's what Asher's name means is happiness. As they they have cause for happiness as they struggle against the forces of evil as they're awaiting the Savior. And Naphtali's name means struggle or wrestle. And when the Savior does come, he's going to nourish them with fat bread and royal dainties. You read about that in verse 20. That speaks about, of course, the marriage supper of the Lamb at the second coming that they will enjoy and we will enjoy. And then lastly, he uh, in verses 22 to 28, Jacob prophesies to his last two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. They foreshadow the second coming and the triumph of Israel's Messiah. 
the one who was sorely grieved and hated. He is referred to as the mighty God of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the one who shall devour the prey and divide the spoil. All these speak of, you know, the stone, remember in Daniel, that comes out of the sky and smites the Gentile nation. All of this speaks of his second coming. It's just absolutely beautiful. That was just quick, but there's so much there. It's just amazing. Well, Jacob's prophecy to Judah, if you go back, it was... um, that the royal staff and the lawgiver status, the sovereignty of the nation of Judah would not depart until Shiloh, the Messiah, appeared. Now, historically speaking, the regency of Judah since King Zedekiah was deposed by Nebuchadnezzar. This is confusing, but he was the last king to actually reign. Nebuchadnezzar came and took him away, but that continued. The sovereignty of Judah actually did continue through law-governing um, lawgivers such as Zerubbabel when they did return to the land. And it also continued through the Sanhedrin council, okay? And they had the lineage of King David. David was a king from the tribe of Judah. And they had all the rightful kings. They had the ancestry in, kept in the temple records, didn't they? Meticulously kept. So if there had been a king at the time of Jesus, the beginning of the first century, Joseph, his stepfather, would have qualified. He came from the right lineage. He came through King Solomon. He could have been king. All right? They had all the records. Today, they don't have the records. If any would-be Messiah came along today, and there have been many, and said, I am the Messiah that Israel has been waiting for. Oh, yeah? Show me your genealogy. Prove to me you go back to David, much less Adam. (laughs) Can they do it? No, because all the records were destroyed in 70 AD, shortly after they rejected Jesus. There's only one Jew who has his genealogical record preserved, and it takes two witnesses, doesn't it, to prove a thing? He has two genealogical records preserved, one in the book of Mook and and Matthew. (laughs) I'm getting tired of my brain. Luke and Matthew. Explain all this to your kids and grandkids at Christmas. It's interesting. He's the only one who can prove. He goes all the way back to to Adam. Well, we know we came back. You know, we all know we came from Adam and Noah. But he has the the proof in a written record. Anyhow, um, by the time of the first century, there were Jews going around so sad because they said, Judah, this prophecy has not come to pass. Because Judah has lost their, their sovereignty. Number one, their law-giving council was completely corrupt. You know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those chief priests in the Sanhedrin council, they were corrupt. They had they, money changers in the temple and all that. And they had a false king sitting on their throne. What was his name? Herod the Great. He wasn't even Jewish. He was an Idumean. He was a false king who had been put there by Rome. And so it looked like Jacob's prophecy had proven to be wrong. And if one prophecy of God is wrong, you throw out your whole Bible, right? So the Jews were very sad because they said, we've lost our sovereignty and Shiloh has not come. He had indeed come. And guess who knew it? Satan. Satan knew the real Shiloh had come. And that's why he used, tried to use Herod to slaughter him in the Bethlehem slaughter of the innocents. The Lord Jesus, you see, is from the tribe of Judah, both through his birth mother, Mary, 
He inherits a bloodline of King David, tribe of Judah, from his mother. And he inherits the royal birthright, kingship right, from his stepfather, Joseph, because he goes back to King Solomon. So he is, he's the true and righteous king and the true and righteous lawgiver. Who gave the law, <laughs> after all? He did. And so Pilate had it right. He had, that's one thing he had right, is when he had inscribed over Jesus' head on the cross, what? Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Well, I know I'm going over time, but I'm almost done. Uh, then in Genesis 50, verses 1 to 13, we find the account of Jacob's death. And he kept talking about dying. He finally died. And uh, Joseph again cries. He weeps. Um, he is embalmed. You know, the Egyptians were great at embalming. So Jacob is embalmed. And there is a long mourning that goes on for for Jacob, actually, the Egyptians mourned for him for 70 days, which is just a few days short of how long they mourned for the Pharaoh when he died. Why did they mourn so long for Jacob? It was out of respect and honor to his son, Joseph, wasn't it? And then we have the longest funeral procession that probably ever occurred. I mean, they're going to have a big one tomorrow when President Bush is buried um but this one beats all i think this is the longest funeral procession it's a good thing we weren't in that traffic jam that ever occurred because they took remember joseph promised he wouldn't bury him in egypt so with his whole family joseph gets permission to leave egypt to go bury his dad from Pharaoh. but all kinds of egyptian dignitaries and they take jacob's um, a coffin and take it all the way to Canaan. Now that's a long funeral procession, isn't it? I mean, a long one and a long time one to get to the graveyard, the cave of Machpelah. But that's what they do. They honored, you know, Joseph honored his father's request and he's buried with uh, his ancestors. Joseph was 56 years old when his father died. And he continued, he went back to Egypt, and he lived in his high position for another 54 years. With the death of their father, Joseph's brothers get very, very anxious, very worried. They think that now that daddy is dead, this is going to be Joseph's time to get revenge. He's just, he hasn't done anything to us because of our dad, his dad. But now that he's gone, uh-oh, we are in trouble. And so what they do is they concoct this letter. They make up this letter. And the Jews who study this say that this was totally them concocting it. Uh, they're deceiving Joseph again. They, they write this letter and they deliver it to Joseph. And they say, Dad wrote this before he died. And it's for you. And it says, don't you dare touch your brothers. <laughs> That's the essence. This is my paraphrase Bible here. <laughs> <laughs> it says uh, that he is to totally forgive their trespasses, sins, and evil. I mean, they know they've done bad. They even call it trespasses, sin, and evil. Um, well, what is his response when he reads this supposed letter from his now deceased father, delivered to him by his brothers? Joseph, again, weeps. Chapter 50, verse 17. He weeps. It breaks his heart. It grieves him 
deeply to realize that his own brothers still don't know him. They still don't know his heart. They don't understand that he has totally graciously forgiven them and forgotten what they did. Do you know how much it grieves Jesus's heart if you do that, if I do that, if we doubt that he has forgiven us totally, thrown our sins in the depths of the sea, and we just keep bringing them up? We grieve his heart like Joseph. He weeps about that. He says, don't you understand? I did it all. It is finished. I did it all for you. I love you. Stop doing that to yourself. So he was brokenhearted. And then seeing his genuine tears, his brothers fall down, again, you know, fulfilling his dreams. They fall down before him and they say, behold, we be thy servants. Verse 18. They don't claim to be his brothers. They say, we're your servants. We're your servants. And then Joseph, it goes on. He, he is so compassionate. He goes on to calm their anxiety by saying, fear not for Am I in the place of God? He understood it wasn't his right to exercise the kind of judgment that belongs only to almighty God. Vengeance is his, isn't it? He knew it wasn't his right. And then he says the famous Genesis 50-20 principle. This is, if you don't memorize this one, you should. This is, this is great. He says, but as for you, Ye thought evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. What had God done? What is he the expert at doing? Taking that which man means for evil and turning it to good to fulfill his purpose and his ultimate purpose was to preserve the nation from which the promised one would come and indeed save much people you know one day to truly repentant Israel the descendants of Jacob Jesus will probably say these very same words what you meant for evil when you rejected me and crucified me god used for the most the best good this world has ever seen to save much people alive and then he told his brothers they didn't need to fear anything he was going to continue to nourish them he was going to continue to provide for them he went out of his way to comfort them and to speak kindly to them and uh he was christ-like right to the end wasn't he right to the end now Although at the time that all of his years of toil and of affliction were occurring, you know, when, when he was sold as a slave and he served Potiphar so faithfully and then Mrs. Potiphar did her little thing and he was thrown unjustly into prison and he was in prison we don't know how long and then finally he had a chance to get out of prison and Mr. Butler forgot all about him and, you know, he went through all those years. Do you know... That that was just but a light affliction compared. Do you know that he was 17 when he was sold? Right? When did he ascend to the throne? How old was he? Just like Jesus when he began his ministry. How many years is that? 17 to 30. 13. Go back to math class. 47. Uh, 13 years. Okay, 13 years of toil and affliction. Do you know how many years he spent 
fruitfulness and forgetting? 80. You see, when Jesus, when God says in the scripture that our suffering down here is just temporary, a light affliction, you know, sometimes we're in the middle of it and we think, oh, it's never going to end. It's, like, it's almost more than I can bear. Well, it isn't because he says it isn't. But compared to eternity, it's like 13 years compared to 80. Wow. When Joseph finally, when he was 110 and realized that his own exodus from Egypt was near, he too summoned his family around him. And he said, this is in 5024, he said, I die. I'm going to try that with my family when they're all around me. I die. <laughs> That's kind of blunt, isn't it? I die, but then he says, and God surely will visit you and bring you out of this land under the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You see, he took the promises of God literally, not spiritually, not allegorically. He took them literally. God said he was going to return us to the land. Guess what, family? He will. You might be here for a while, but he's going to return you. He had confidence in the fulfillment of God's promises. And then he made the children of Israel take an oath. They were to promise him that when God did bring them out of Egypt, that they would carry his body, his bones, back with them to Canaan. He didn't want to be caught dead in Egypt either. (laughs) So in what we could call the last will and testament of the wealthy vizier of Egypt, Joseph, the son of Jacob, That which he left his family, you know, they're in front of the lawyer and the lawyer opens up the last will. What did dad leave us? What did grandpa leave us? Well, it wasn't a mansion on the Nile River. It wasn't a herd of Arabian horses. It wasn't a treasure chest full of gold and silver. It wasn't even a pyramid dedicated to his memory. Rather, he left them a fantastic life testimony, which is the most important, isn't it, to leave behind for your family? He left behind his absolute assurance in the truth of God's words and his promises. And this was really strange. He left them his embalmed body. A box of bones. In other words, he left them a memorial body. You know, throughout the centuries of the Hebrews' sufferings that they encountered in Egypt, when other pharaohs who knew not Joseph came to power, throughout their sufferings, his box of bones, his coffin, served to remind them of God's sovereignty and his providential purposes for everything even in the midst of suffering his sarcophagus would also remind them throughout their 40 years of wilderness wandering you know when they're in the wilderness for those 40 long years with Moses going in circles around the desert (laughs) do you know what they're carrying with them a coffin. Literally, did you ever think of that? <laughs> they carried Joseph's coffin with them throughout those 40 years. And it served to remind them that God surely would, one of these days, he will bring us into the land as he promised. 
So Joseph's memorial body spoke to the Israelites as the Lord tells us today to remember his body broken for us, his sinless shed blood, uh, his sinless blood shed for us. You know, when we take the elements of the Lord's Supper, they are to remind us that he keeps his promises. He surely did visit us, didn't he? Didn't he? He, he, broke, he? he visited us in order to save us. And he surely will visit us again to bring us into the promised land. He keeps his promises. So you see, this is the last way in which Joseph is a picture, a type of Jesus. Basically, he said to his family, do this in remembrance of me. Isn't it beautiful? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, thank you, thank you for your grace in allowing us to finish the book, the wonderful beginning book. Of Genesis, And when we go back and think how it all began, it began with your creation. And yet it ends with a coffin. It began with glory. It ends with a grave. It began talking about the vastness of eternity and we end talking about the shortness of life. It began with you, the living God. It ends with a dead man began with a blaze of brightness in heaven and it ends with a box of bones on earth. All of this is evidence of the nature and the tragedy of sin. The devil surely lied to Eve when he said, Thou shalt not surely die. And yet, and yet, we have the true hope of the promised seed of the woman, the Savior, who surely did come, that we might not truly die, but spend eternity with him. The book ends with Joseph, the most Christ-like man that this world has probably ever seen. Perhaps Moses is the other exception. What a glorious book you have given to us. And that's just the first of 66. And now, Father, as we go into this holiday season, I ask that you would truly let each of us be an influence to those we come into contact with. Those in our circle of influence, may we be salt and light to everyone and remind them, as Terry said earlier, that the real reason of the season is Jesus. It's all about Jesus, as is your whole word. We love you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. God bless you.